This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. So I want to talk real quick about base map too. Base map is an awesome, awesome tool to have in your arsenal to hold all your maps. They've got new online, I mean offline maps now, so you can download them, keep them on your phone, and they operate five times faster than old maps did. So it's uh, really, really great to download those ahead of time. That way, if you're in a place where you don't have a good cell signal or something like that, you still got your maps and you could drop all your waypoints and stuff with your GPS. I used... Uh, base map all last season and I can't just I can't tell you how much I like it over a lot of other platforms um, especially their smart markers I think it's really cool you can drop those and get all kinds of data points that you normally wouldn't have just by dropping a marker on your phone so that's really cool too. use the promo code PC 25 save yourself 25% on sign up make sure you do it online on the website not on the app though because uh, Promo codes and discounts don't work on the app. So also I want to talk about my giveaway that I'm doing. I talked about it in episode number 65, but I'm also going to talk about it now. I'm giving away a spot to the Western Hunting Summit. Uh, Ryan Lampers puts it on. It's the Healthy Hunter, and it's a really cool experience. Brian Barney, um, Cody Rich, 
uh, just all kinds of great people are going to be there sharing their knowledge with you about elk hunting, bear hunting, uh, archery, and uh, rifle hunting as well. So if you could send an email, send an email to publicly challenged at admin at publiclychallenged.com. That is admin at publiclychallenged.com. Or you can go to the Publicly Challenged website and there is an email submission form that you can do right there on the website. But go do that, just one paragraph or longer if you feel you need to, but just tell us why you would want to go to the hunting summit. And, uh, or you can nominate somebody else why you think they deserve to go to the hunting summit. And we will, uh, we will get somebody going to that. So send that email and submit yourself or somebody else and follow publicly challenged on Instagram and follow the Western hunting summit on Instagram. And if you do that, when you, when you send the email, make sure that you put your social media handle in the email so I can see that you're following Western Hunting Summit and Publicly Challenged. And with that being said, let's get to the show. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I am talking to Austin Lester. And Austin, last time I had you on the show, we talked about uh, hunting with Eastman's and we kind of touched on hunter preparedness and uh, first aid medical type stuff. But being that the expert you are, I wanted to have you come back on and uh, really dive deeper into the weeds on this because I think, I think it's something that most hunters are, uh, are really kind of lacking. And, you know, you hear all these guys talking about how, you know, they're lightening up their pack as much as they can, or, you know, like I talked to somebody the other day and they were talking about how their med kit, you know, well, if you, or any kit part of their kit, really, I shouldn't say med kit, but any part of their kit that they're just, if you haven't used it in the last two or three trips, take it out of your pack. Cause you don't need it. And that doesn't necessarily go for when it comes to first aid. So I think you're the man to have on. And with that being said, can you go, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, man? Yes. Well, uh, thanks for having me back, man. I appreciate it. I'm glad I didn't scare you off with the first one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, man, uh, my name is Austin, like you said, and, uh, I've been working with, uh, fuel craft survival for the last couple of years now. And, um, I'm the, uh, lead media dude and I teach survival and I teach med for them as well. Um, and, uh, and my background is, it started actually when I was 17, I went through a EMT basic course. Um, my mom signed me up for that. I graduated high school early and really had no true direction for where I was going to go or what I was going to do. Um, I was looking at a few schools to go to college and, and maybe do something that down that route, but, um, school really wasn't my thing in the traditional sense. So, uh, she'd signed me up for that course and she had been a, a neonatal nurse, uh, pretty much my entire life and has been for 30 plus years. And so it had already obviously kind of bled into my lifestyle a little bit. And so I was like, all right, yeah, I'll check this out. Did EMT and ended up loving it. Um, I had great instructors. I had great group of dudes that I was in there with. And, um, and that kind of started me on my journey, learning about, you know, in the medical field and from there went on and uh, went through the paramedic course and worked uh, with a volunteer organization there um, as an emergency rescue technician with uh, a volunteer organization to do uh, VMR, which is like uh, cutting people out of vehicles and uh, confined space, structural collapse, high angle rescue, stuff like that. So, um, 
I, I just, I started it and I loved it and found a lot of passion for it. And then ended up joining the military after doing that for a few years and uh, was able to be a part of a combat search and rescue team when I deployed um, and got to do a little bit of the med stuff with that, but more so just the, uh, the finding and plucking out of the, out of harm's way and bringing back. Um, so I, I, I had a, my medical background though, did help me tremendously uh, in that. And uh, I'll definitely say that of all the skills that I've learned and things that I've done, uh, my medical training has helped me probably more than anything else. No, that's awesome, man. And uh, glad to have you on and talk about all that kind of stuff. So with that being said, like hunter preparedness, um, let's kind of, I think maybe go over kit first totally. and then, and then kind of why you need those things. So like, I mean, you and I talked last time when we talked about tourniquets, I mean, that's like, it's huge, especially with hunters, sharp pointy sticks, all kinds of, you know, things that could go wrong. And, um, so like, let's talk about, well, actually let's just talk about total kit and then maybe we can, uh, going into, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> what do you think? Should we go yeah. into that or should we go into like assessing stuff first? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk kit first and then we'll, uh, and, and maybe I'll have a few stories that can kind of make it pertinent for, for people. Um, as far as kit goes, um, and, and I understand I'm a hunter myself. I spend a ton of time in the back country. Uh, if I'm not at the office editing a video or teaching a class, I'm probably out in the woods, you know, myself. I'm actually a member of the search and rescue team here locally in Utah where I live. And uh, I spend a great deal of time uh, with those guys and, and doing rescues here with that as well. But uh, as far as kit goes, you know, like you said, a tourniquet is is usually the first thing I look for. If, if I couldn't have anything else out of a medical kit, I'm at least going to carry a tourniquet or two, preferably two on me. Um, just because that is one of the leading killers of people um, in, in any circumstance. You know, it's the number one killer on the battlefield is massive hemorrhage. Um, and a lot of times that massive hemorrhaging can be stopped. Um, and the reason that we develop medical kits and medical kits are developed the way that they are and we did at Fieldcraft Survival is, is we followed literally the, the March algorithm. And I'm sure most people are familiar with it, but it stands for um, massive hemorrhage, airway, respiration, uh, circulation and hypothermia or head injury. And so um, using that algorithm, you carry as many things as you can uh, to facilitate you taking care of all of those needs um, because those are the life-saving ones. Those are the super urgent things that, that you can make an intervention on and potentially save somebody's life or at least prolong life to get them out of the back country uh, into the back of an ambulance or you know, to an ER somewhere so they can have prolonged care. So uh, tourniquet first and foremost. Um, and then I also like to carry, again, following that algorithm, some type of an airway device, uh, like a nasal pharyngeal airway, an MPA. Um, it's just like a long kind of rubber tube that flares at one end and it's uh, it's got like an angle of bevel at one end. Um, so that way you can slide it. It comes with actually, a, most of them will come with you know, <laughs> lube. Yeah, some petroleum jelly or something to uh, put on there so you can lube it up and put it in their nose. Uh, a lot of times I haven't even used that. I just use somebody's spit in their mouth and <laughs> nice and wet and slide so, on. So let's talk about that. Like, I mean, cause not your average person is probably trained to insert a nasal pharyngeal airway. Yeah. And I mean, it does take a little bit of skill and a little bit of practice. Now, 
have you ever been brave enough to administer one to yourself to practice? I do. I either put one in myself or have a student put one in me every med class that I teach with field graph. Um, Not because I enjoy it. (laughs) It's not that fun, (laughs) Um, but because I think, and I have all my students that are willing, I don't force anybody, but everybody that's willing to, uh, to kind of cowboy up and try it. Um, I encourage them to try it on each other and to have one done to them. So um, if you were going to give verbal direction, Austin, would you like put it in, right? And at some point you rotate and push yeah, so basically you're going to lubricate it with either spit or the, the, the lubricant that comes with it. Um, and then that bevel um, is important. And you're going to align that bevel to where the bevel is facing the septum. So the pointing end of the bevel will face the septum or the center part of your nose between your two nostrils. And then you'll start sliding it in like that. And then as it, um, as it starts to slide in and you kind of start to hit the back of the throat, you're going to kind of rotate that around. And you'll notice that kind of spinning it will help it insert a little bit better. Um, as you really get to that last, um, last third of the, of the MPA, you're going to notice a little bit of resistance, which is just where it's starting to meet uh, the back of the throat. And that's usually the most uncomfortable part for the, for the patient as well. Um, if you're practicing on somebody that's, you know, not in some type of a medical emergency, um, you just breathe, you swallow and, and you can get through it pretty easily. Um, it doesn't really affect your gag reflex or anything that, that much. Um, it's just uncomfortable. And then you kind of push on through and then you'll get that to where the flared in rests just right around the nostril. Um, and actually prior to that, you should really measure it from the tip of the nose to the, uh, I'm not even going to use a technical term, but the little dangly flap on your ear. So lobe, <laughs> we'll call it the lobe. <laughs> yeah. And so you can measure from there to there. And then, um, and then you'll, you can cut and adjust it for size. If someone is smaller, um, typically you'll see that with females or children, but they also come in a different diameter as well. Um, so if you do get them and use them, you can either buy them in a kit themselves where they do have them already sized for, for smaller females or children, um, or you can just cut it down to size with a pair of shears or scissors or a knife. Um, but if you do cut the end, obviously cut the end with the bevel and cut a bevel back into it. Um, so that way it's not too long, which there's really, I mean, it would have to be a pretty dramatic length difference for it to really affect the patient negatively. Like I wouldn't want to put a full size NPA in, you know, like an infant's nose or anything like that. One, it's probably not going to fit unless you force it. And two, it's, I mean, then you can completely occlude the airway anyway. So um, just something to think about when you do it. So what about like an oral airway? Um, You can absolutely use an oral airway. Um, Typically for the untrained person and and oral airway or the uh, OPA is a little bit more difficult to use. Um, And it's a very similar concept and all it's using and all it's doing either one OPA or the MPA, um, what they're doing is they're just sitting in the back of the throat um, allowing the patient's tongue to not occlude the airway. And it's, it's not what we would in, in EMS consider a definitive airway. Like it's not going to sustain life for a long period of time, but for someone that's unconscious, has been knocked unconscious or, or whatever the circumstances are, um, it's definitely a, a good uh, tool to have in your kit. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so what else would you kind of want to include in the kit? Um, one of my next favorite pieces of gear to carry is, um, is a, uh, is a splint of some kind. Um, my favorite is a Sam splint. Uh, and what it is, it's just a piece of aluminum and it measures about, 
uh, probably about three feet. I don't remember the exact measurements, but about three feet long and about five inches wide and just maybe quarter inch to a half inch thick. And it's got a, it's a piece of aluminum, soft aluminum that can fold and ply. Um, and it's surrounded by a foam. And so that way it's just more comfortable. And uh, it folds up nice and neat to where it's about a, about a foot long. And like I said, about five inches wide down into your pack, it will come uh, uh, sealed in a, in a plastic wrapper. Uh, but those things have a ton of great uses uh, in the backcountry. Um, aside from just being splint, you know, you can peel the aluminum off and, um, you know, take that aluminum and polish it up pretty good with like a little bit of uh, grit from out of the river and use it as a signal mirror. I mean, you can, um, you can turn them into a bowl and then even boil water in them. You know, if you hold them up with water far enough, you know, so they have, they have multiple uses, uh, but uh, the obvious one being a splint, uh, which is why I like to carry those. And I'll usually carry a couple of those depending on space and weight savings, which they weigh next to nothing. So it's not really a weight concern. It's just, um, they're a little bit of an odd shape, but um, if you can, if you get creative, you can find some good spots to keep it in your pack. So let's kind of circle back real quick. Uh, when you mentioned tourniquet, cause mm-hmm. one, you said two was two, you would like to carry two. Now, does that go back to the philosophy of two is one, one is none, or does that fall back on the fact that if you put one tourniquet on and it's not stopping the blood add another one and potentially uh, stop the blood? Yeah, uh, both. Um, you know, I'm a, uh, that's an adage that I learned in the military and, um, I try to make that the case for most things, you know, there's a few things you can get away with one, but if I'm carrying one, then I'm carrying it, um, with an understanding that I'm okay. That if, if that one fails me, that it's not a critical piece of gear. So if it's something that I feel I really need, then I'm going to carry to, um, to increase my likelihood of success and a tourniquet's definitely one of those things, um. Like in my vehicle, I carry four tourniquets. I carry two within, really three of them are well within my reach. Two really, really close, um, but three that I can get to um, just if, from a seated position in my truck. Um, but in the backcountry, I carry at least two. Um, and usually we'll carry a rat's tourniquet as well, which is a different style than a, a, the North American Rescue cat tourniquet. The rats is a, the cat is a, is a, the more familiar one. That's the one that everybody kind of knows and what it looks like and, and a general idea of how to use it. But the rats tourniquet is a little bit different. It's, it's got a, a metal buckle on it, a small U-shaped metal buckle. And then it had, it's already pre-staged to an extent of it creates a loop for you. And then that loop will sit against the skin. You'll take the running end of the tourniquet and it's an elastic material, uh, like a very, it's like a rubber band, elastic type material covered in like a cloth and it stretches, has a good amount of stretch in it. But I'll take that running into the tourniquet, run it around the limb, then I'm applying it, feed it through that loop and then I'll cinch it down like that and I'll pull all the tension and elasticity out and I'll start wrapping that around the limb and then it clips into that metal buckle and holds. Um, there's a few different reasons for carrying one of those for me. And one of those is uh, it, the cat tourniquet, um, works really well for an average size adult male, uh, most females, almost all females, and even some children. Um, however, if you do have someone that's smaller, um, like a small child, a cat tourniquet is going to be too big. Um, 
Also, the rat's tourniquet, I don't, won't have that problem because I can cinch it down as tight as I need it. Uh, and also the, the rat's tourniquet is something that you can use on an animal as well. So something you could use uh, on a horse, on a dog, a small child, whatever. So the one um, thing like about the rats though, I mean, do you think a small child could actually put enough force on the rats to do it? Like versus the torsion bar, or the tension bar that's on, you know, like a, yeah, the windlass. Yeah. Um, and that, that really is when you look statistically at the data that supports tourniquets, um, the windlass is what is really the, um, the key factor in the success behind that tourniquet. Uh, and the rats doesn't have anything like that. It relies solely on that elasticity um, to work. And the other thing that makes a tour tourniquet really successful is its width. So, uh, you know, a cat tourniquet is a couple inches thick and the rat's tourniquet is only about a half inch thick. So you have to stretch that and then it takes a little bit more technical ability because you have to stretch it and then wrap it um, within touching end to build that thickness. So it takes a little bit more um, technical ability, which is something that um, most untrained people um, won't be able to perform and do something like that under stress. And on top of that, it's something that can be difficult to do appropriately at night with no real good light. So um, definitely, you know, those are just pros and cons in my personal opinion um, to some of those, but I, I definitely carry both, you know. So let's kind of get into like tourniquets and, you know, like you can go on Amazon and buy a tourniquet, right? Mm -hmm. You could even get like a 10 pack of tourniquets for 30 bucks, but mm -hmm. not all tourniquets are created equal. And Absolutely. let's kind of like break that down a little bit. Like if you were going to buy one, name the top three that you would buy or something like that. Um, if I was going to get a tourniquet one, I'm going to do the homework. It, this is uh, what you should consider a life-saving piece of equipment because it literally is. Um, you wouldn't go online and buy the cheapest handgun that you find, right? A lot of people are like, well, I want to get whatever's cheapest. Well, that applies with certain parameters, right? Like most people aren't going to go rock a high point um, in their, you know, <laughs> in their chest rig whenever they're in bear country, right? Um, that's not what I'm going to rely on to save my life. I'm probably looking at that 10 millimeter, right? Or 357 or something along those lines, you know? Um, and I'm not going to go cheap on ammo either, right? Like I'm going to, pay attention to all those things. Well, this is no different than that. Um, don't just go buy the cheapest thing you see on Amazon. Like you said, not all tourniquets, not all medical uh, devices or um, any medical equipment, they're not all created equal. Uh, so I would say the North American Rescue um, Cat Tourniquet, the Gen 7, which is the newest one, is in my opinion, the best tourniquet on the market. Um, it, I've used the, the North American Rescue Cat Tourniquets ever since I was in EMS, which I think then we were like on the cat two or something, cat three, you know, um, I can't remember what model, but they all have the same basic principle. Um, they have a buckle, they have a windlass, they have a windlass clip, and then they have the body of the tourniquet and then the tip, which is painted red for a specific reason. And uh, it has an internal wrenching. Uh, the windlass actually spins a piece of webbing that runs the length of the tourniquet that's inside of a, like a sheath, essentially. You don't see it, uh, but it's what's actually attached to the windlass. So um, that's what allows it to be so effective. So when you put the Velcro, uh, you run the tip through the buckle around the limb, uh, you cinch it down as tight as you can, you feed all the Velcro onto the tourniquet, and then you begin to turn and twist that windlass. You twist it until the bleeding stops or you can't turn that windlass anymore. 
you slide the windlass inside the windlass clip and then it has a timestamp piece of Velcro that goes over the windlass clip. That will, uh, and it'll also be, you can hear it called a windlass retention Velcro or, and, or something along those lines. And you'll apply that over that retains the windlass inside the clip. And then you write the time that the tourniquet was applied uh, on that, that small piece of Velcro. But that internal wrenching uh, webbing attached to the windlass is what really allows you to get that extra amount of pressure and tension around that limb. So um, that is a, it's completely proprietary. They spent millions, millions of dollars designing that and getting it approved through all their appropriate channels. So that way they can say without a shadow of a doubt that this is the piece of equipment that you should be carrying. Uh, I've trusted those uh, for many years. I've, I've used them personally um, on patients that I've had and have seen them save people's lives. Um, I hate saying that thing like, oh, well, I saved this person's life, but uh, I've applied them to people and then they have lived because of that. Um, and, if, and getting to a hospital and repairing that thing, you know, so I, I, I'm not huge on just saying that myself, but, um, you know, they do work very effectively. Um, and I'm sure there are instances where, um, you know, it, it may not, it may not stop the bleeding immediately. And in those cases, you may have to apply and you should apply a second tourniquet um, and then, you know, stack that one down. Um, after that, I would say the soft T uh, is another really good option. Um, I've used them. I've carried them. I've never actually used one myself. Uh, I've trained with them. I've never actually applied one to a patient. Um, but they work off of a very similar type technology. They just have their own proprietary twist. Um, and then the materials that are used are different. Um, where the windlass has a synthetic, or I'm sorry, the, the, the North American Rescue Cat Tourniquet has a synthetic windlass, the little wrenching, the little twisty um, on it is synthetic. Uh, the soft tee has a metal windlass. Um, so it's a little bit more of a robust system and some people tend to like that a little bit more, but um, I've never seen, I've seen photos of the windlass breaking um, on a North American rescue, but I've never seen that myself. And I've wrenched on some tourniquets. I do training just about every other week with these. I train on my own time with these, have used them and never seen them break. So let's kind of talk about that as far as training goes then. So training with your tourniquet versus carrying it and relying on it to use, would you train with the same tourniquet and now i don't mean train with the same type of tourniquet the same exact one you're are you going to want to wrench on that and use it day in and day out and then hopefully rely on it for uh or yeah. do you want to carry a separate one for absolutely that? i i always encourage everyone to and ensure it's a little bit costly i think you're looking at 35 dollars probably for a cat tourniquet from north american rescue um but you should absolutely have one that you train with and you should have however many it is that you decide that you want to carry. And I, I don't encourage anyone to train with a tourniquet and then carry it um, because there, one, there's just really no need for that unless you're just being a total cheapo. Uh, it's not that expensive. And two, you know, you're, it's just wear and tear on that piece of equipment. And that's not something that you want to fail. Um, when you buy them, they do come wrapped in plastic with a little, uh, piece of paper in there with some patent info and you know a little bit of uh, information about the tourniquet i encourage everyone to open that plastic up take out that little piece of paper and then store the tourniquet outside the plastic in your kit uh, in your pocket wherever it is that you're going to carry it and so that way you're not trying to 
to fumble around with a bunch of plastic when you know there's an actual emergency happening and you need that tourniquet. So have one to train with that you and your family take turns training with, and then have the ones that you're going to carry. And they do come in a couple of different colors. So the cat specifically comes in um, black, orange, and blue. And a lot of people like the black because it looks cool or it's not as bright. Um, it's bright for a reason. Typically, people will train with a blue tourniquet, and then they know that's a training tourniquet. So um, that's how we are here at, at Fieldcraft. We'll train with blue tourniquets so that way everybody knows, hey, these are ones that are being used uh, in reps to, to have practice with familiarity with the equipment, how to use it. And then the orange tourniquets are the ones that we carry and we encourage people to carry because it's bright and contrasting and you can see it very easily. Uh, if I have a tourniquet on, I want someone to see that, that I need that help. Yes. So black is, was designed for law enforcement, military to be able to put on in, a, in an environment, like a non-permissive environment where they don't need something bright sticking out to be seen. Um, that's why the black ones are there. And would, I mean, if you really want to carry a black one, carry a black one. But I personally, if I'm ever using one, I want to be seen having that tourniquet on. So let's just say maybe on your chest rig, carry a black one, but in your hunter's pack, carry an orange one. There you go. There you go. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I get it. You know, I, I get it. It's not, it's not that cool, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely one of those things where there's a purpose behind it. That, and it's just that little bit that most people just never, never really hear about. So what, what else would you carry in your kit then? I mean, what are some other essentials that like you definitely have to have? So we've said tourniquet, we've said an MPA or some type of airway device, whether it's MPA, OPA, uh, I've said a splint, and then I definitely like to carry some wound packing gauze, um, more specifically a gauze with a hemostatic agent inside of it or embedded within the material. And what that is, is a hemostatic agent essentially is just a fancy word for uh, a chemical that promotes what's called coagulation which is the body's ability to clot its blood. And um, whenever you use this gauze, it comes in a Z-fold. You may even see it called or labeled Z-fold gauze, but look for something that has a hemostatic agent inside of it. And um, what, why you would need that is whenever there's a puncture wound to certain areas of the body that you can't, that, I mean, maybe you can use a tourniquet on it, but maybe it doesn't necessarily need tourniquet maybe it's not uh, an indication of an arterial bleed or massive hemorrhage but it's something that you could still pack to stop bleeding over a long course of time um, or it's in an area that you can't use a tourniquet on like in a shoulder you know like up, up kind of by your collarbone or something like that um, um, or in a hip or something along those lines you don't ever want to pack in the chest you don't ever want to pack in the stomach as well because uh, that's an open cavity right you're going to pack and pack and pack and pack feet on feet on feet of of gauze and never do anything. So uh, it's used in areas where you can't use a tourniquet and it's not in the open cavity of the chest or stomach. Um, but it's used, you create like a little, what we call a power ball on the end where it's just, you take that material, you ball it up and then you'll stick that ball and you'll stick your, your finger of your opposite hand that's holding the ball. So if I'm right-handed, I'll stick my finger in the wound and find the source of bleeding, whether that's the actual vessel itself or at least where the most amount of blood is coming from. And then I will run that ball down next to my finger and wedge that ball right onto the source of the bleeding. And then I'll take the rest of that gauze. Um, one way that you can do it is just toss it over your shoulder 
Uh, and then you'll start to feed that down in with the opposite hand. So if I'm holding it with my two fingers on my left hand into the wound, I'm gonna take with my right hand and start packing with one or two fingers on top of that and holding a lot of pressure and a lot of tension. And then I'll pull my other hand out, grab another bit of that gauze and stuff it down and continue packing that one on top of the other uh, until that entire space and cavity is full. And then I'll wrap that in another type of gauze or a bandage of some sort and uh, maintain pressure on top of it after that. So I, I think a, a wound packing gauze um, with hemostatic agent is another great one. And it's really small, it's easy to pack. Um, in most kits, I'll carry two, two of those at least. So after you're carrying that, like uh, like quick clot or, or what, what would be your preferred? I mean, everybody probably, you know, has their own, but I mean, there's like two major brands that I know of. Yeah, quick, um, quick clot's the one I'm personally most familiar with. I've used it quite a bit. Um, we used it in the military. We had just gotten some by them when I was in EMS. And uh, it's, it's the one that I'm most familiar with. Most of those brands that are out there, um, you just want to make sure that it's from a reputable company. Um, it's not hard to do the research on it. You know, a quick Google search and you can find the top three companies out there that do it. Um, but don't, don't buy the, the cheap thing on Amazon. That comes <laughs> weird. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, like I said, this is all life-saving equipment. So uh, take the time, do a little bit of homework, make sure it's a reputable company and, and, and make your purchase that way. Yeah, definitely. I think like the other one that I've seen and I've never personally used, but I have used quick clot on like just the powder, even the powdered quick clot on some oh, cuts absolutely. and stuff like that. But um, I think the other one's Sealox or something like that, mm -hmm. but I've never seen it or actually used it. I just seen it around, but um so what would be, you know, kind of some other stuff that you definitely should keep in there? I mean, obviously as a hunter, you don't want to get too heavy, but at the same time, I mean, yeah. this is and, saving your life. And that's the nice thing about everything I've talked about so far packs down pretty small. Uh, everything, and I've got a few other items I'll mention, but um, everything kind of packs into a kit that's, uh, that's no more than probably six inches by four inches by two or three inches. Um, not taking up a lot of weight or space, not taking up much weight um, and hundred percent worth carrying. So uh, the next thing I would say is probably a trauma dressing. Um, they come in a few different sizes. You can get them in a three inch and a six inch variant. And there may even be a few other uh, sizes out there as well, but um, I like the six inch. It is bigger and puffier. Uh, three inches is great. If you really need those weight savings. Um, but obviously the six inch is the preferred one. And all that is, is uh, it's a bandage that um, it has a really thick gauze pad that's six inches long. It's about three, three and a half inches wide and probably an inch thick uh, in one area. And then it has an elastic, almost like ace bandage type material for the rest for the length. And on the very end of that ace bandage type material is a clip. And what you'll do is you'll, so, and this would be a great um, bandage to use after you use some type of packing gauze on top of a wound. You take that big, thick padded uh, bandage and you'll put that right on top of it. And then you'll maintain pressure. You take that elastic material, you'll wrap it around that limb or wherever you're applying it. And you don't want to get it super tight, right? You're not doing it like you do the tourniquet where you get it as tight as you can. I'm taking this to where it's tight enough where if I'm, I can slide a couple of fingers underneath that, that bandage, and that way they're still getting circulation to the rest of that limb. I'm not trying to completely cut off circulation because again, 
I'm applying this on something that is not what I would consider massive hemorrhage. This is just something where I need to control the bleeding and then protect the wound. So I would put that on top, uh, start wrapping that ACE wrap around it. And then um, at the very end, you'll take that clip. And if you look at it just in a picture, you'll see kind of how it works, but it just clips over either side of the ACE bandage and will and we'll stay put. You can even uh, finish it off with a, there's some of them, some brands have a little piece of Velcro that'll stick to that um, ACE bandage and hold it in place. Or you can even take a piece of just uh, med tape, surgical tape, duct tape, whatever you got and tape it down. Uh, and then one other quick little trick with those is uh, another thing that you can do is uh, as you do a wrap, so I'll do a normal wrap over the bandage with that ACE. And then what I can do is I can twist the bandage once and put that twist directly over uh, the spot that was bleeding. And what that does is as I twist one way and, and bring it around and then twist the other way, it begins to uh, create like a little um, spot that creates a little bit more pressure, direct pressure over that one spot. So if it's maybe you've applied the wound packing gauze and then you've applied the bandage and it's still bleeding through just a little bit, you can apply that twist right over the spot that's bleeding and get a little bit more direct pressure out of that bandage as well. That's a good idea. That's definitely a good idea for sure. Yeah. And uh, anything else? Like, I mean, because I mean, one thing that I've used on a dummy, but I've never actually uh, done it. And I kind of be afraid is like a decompression needle. Yeah, definitely so, not something you probably want to carry if you don't know what you're doing, right? I would definitely encourage you, even with any of this, to get some training, right? I think med training is one of those things. It's, it's pretty widely available. Um, lots of places you can get it. Hit us up at Fieldcraft. We do it all the time. You know, we're, we're training all over the country with it. And it's not super expensive, but a needle, a needle D uh, or a decompression <laughs> needle is definitely something... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's definitely something that I would encourage you to have some training on before you just took to using it. Um, and more training than just a YouTube video, right? More training than just what I'm going to talk to you about in the podcast. Right, <laughs> right, definitely. <laughs> because uh, it's a three and a half inch needle that um, is, I can't remember what gauge it is. I want to say it's... Uh, I know newer ones are a lot smaller than the older ones. I think they're like a 16 gauge or something like yeah, that. And I want to say it's a 16 gauge needle. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty big needle, right? Um, but what is used for is you put it between, you know, the intercostal space and, in between a couple of ribs, what you're doing is reinflating a lung. And there are some indications that will, will bring you to why you would need to use a needle D, uh, a needle D and, um, and it's, it, it's kind of a deep subject to get into, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's definitely a training consideration there because you can definitely do some harm, um, using a sticking a needle into somebody's chest right <laughs> but it is it is a good piece of, of gear to carry because it's small it's lightweight and it has a huge impact on the outcome of a patient if it's done appropriately um, but that's kind of the key phrase is if it's done appropriately so so uh, is there anything else in the kit then because uh, yeah, i think i think the last few items that i i personally would encourage you to carry is a pair of trauma shears um, just so that way you can one cut bandages, but two also expose injuries um, from a patient or a victim, right? So um, you know a lot of people joke and have said, "Oh yeah, if you're in a situation where there's been trauma, you get what, what they call trauma naked, right? Where medics are going to show up and cut all your clothes off and they'll be laying there naked." Well, um, that's somewhat true. That's partially true. Um, 
And the reason that is, is one, you can't treat what you can't see. Um, and so you have to expose an injury to actually properly treat that injury. And, um, but there, there is a too far point with that as well, right? Um, I don't want to um, expose somebody out, you know, wherever I am, no matter the time of year and cut all their clothing off. Like I'm going to cut just enough to expose the injury, be able to treat it and cover them back up. Uh, and there's a few reasons for that. One, uh, their dignity. <laughs> don't just cut somebody's clothes off just to do it. Uh, but two, uh, when someone loses a lot of blood, your blood is what keeps you at 98.6 and what allows you to sustain life at the proper temperature. When you lose a lot of blood, you can fall into what's called secondary hypothermia. And what that means is you've lost enough blood that your body starts to significantly cool off. And it doesn't matter. It can be 105 degrees outside and they can be laying on the asphalt and still suffer from this. And it's actually a very um, common thing that medical providers deal with, especially paramedics and EMTs on the street deal with. They have to fight that because it, it happens very frequently. And there's a few st statistics out there that are pretty alarming with it. Um, and I, I can't remember the exact numbers, so I'm not going to try to tell you uh, what those are, but they're very high. And there's several, um, a lot of patients show up to the emergency room hypothermic due to that. And most of them that show up hypothermic end up passing away because um, it causes several other issues uh, within the body whenever you become hypothermic. So don't just cut somebody's clothes off because there's an injury. Expose the wound, treat the wound, uh, and then cover them back up and keep them warm and treat with shock. Uh, also, I would put a blanket in there, like a, um, a survival blanket of some kind, which is just that shiny material. Everybody's pretty familiar with seeing them. Usually they're bright orange on one side. They have that reflective material on the other. Um, they pack down really small. They're easy to carry. Uh, and you can cover somebody up with those and help uh, promote warming them up and treating for shock. And then lastly, I would say I encourage some tape and some gloves, some nitrile gloves. Rubber gloves are kind of a thing of the past. Uh, most glove companies that are making gloves are producing them in nitrile, which allows you to not have to worry about someone that would have uh, an anaphylactic reaction uh, or are allergic to rubber. Uh, nitrile is one of those things that's pretty universal um, that you don't have to worry about that with. And the gloves aren't just because, ooh, ooh, gross blood, right? Like, it's not like, oh, I just don't want to get blood on my hands. And it's not just for oh gosh, I don't want to catch whatever they have. Because even if I'm working on a friend of mine that I know very well and I don't have to worry about any um, disease or anything crazy that I could catch from them, it's still, it's just a thing of hygiene, right? I don't want to be treating an injury, uh, especially something that's a deep puncture wound or a deep laceration or something with my nasty grimy hands, especially if I'm out in the back country where I have God knows what all over my hands. Um, <laughs> just put a little, put your gloves on, uh, treat the injuries because especially if you, plan on spending any amount of time in the back country, more than a day or two, you can get infection just that quick. And it's very dangerous. Um, you know, you can end up with all kinds of issues, cellulitis and, uh, and all kinds of issues where that can be life threatening, you know, and especially with the consideration of being in the back country. So just carry a pair of gloves and, and wear those if you're going to, even just little nicks and scratches, just wear a pair of gloves. Yeah, for sure. Plus, I mean, the stuff under your fingernails, like you said, just every little thing. Um, but yep. with, with that being said, let's kind of let's talk about um, 
now that we talked about all the tools and what to carry and, and kind of a little bit of how to use them, let's talk about like identifying and, and when to use them. Yeah. So one of the biggest things is, um, is, is an assessment and uh, where I grew up doing EMS, you know, a big thing was assessments. They, they really sent that home with us because you can't treat what you can't find. And it, you're doing a disservice to whoever it is that you're trying to help by not doing a proper assessment. And you can see a lot of what we would call distracting injuries. And what that means is, you know, if you come up to a car accident, there may be somebody, and, and, and I'll just go and, and I'll be the guy that gets dramatic, but um, just for the example of the point that I'm making, you know, you come up to a car accident or uh, somebody that fell and they could have a broken arm, right? If a guy falls out of a tree stand, uh, you know, that's a pretty significant distance to fall. And we look at falls greater than 10 feet to be something to be very urgent with uh, because there's way, there's a lot of room for injury there. And, but you could have a guy that falls and he fell on a stick, but his arm is broken and is sitting at a 90 degree angle. And that's a very distracting injury, right? Like he's probably looking at it. He's freaked out. You're freaked out. But what you're not paying attention to because you didn't do a proper assessment is the stick that stabbed him in his leg and punctured his femoral artery. And now he's bleeding to death. Um, that arm, as long as there's no major bleeding there, isn't going to kill him. It's just a broken long bone. It can be fixed and it can be reset and he'll be totally fine from that. But it is very distracting. It's a very painful injury to have. But it may not be the injury that's going to kill them the fastest. So you have to do a proper assessment uh, to pay attention and see what is happening with a, a patient so you can treat what's the most urgent uh, then to the least urgent, if that makes sense. So um, there's a few different ways of approaching an assessment. And the first way of doing it is say you witness, and we'll just, we'll just run with the tree stand um, uh, example. Uh, you know, you see your buddy uh, going up the tree in his tree stand, something goes wrong, something breaks or whatever. He falls 15 feet out of this tree, um, lands, thumps his head, lands in a pile of sticks, and he's unconscious. So he can't even tell you what's going on. But you run over to him. And the first thing that you need to pay attention to in an assessment is not only an assessment of your victim, but an assessment of the surroundings. Is this area safe for me to actually be in? Because if I run in there and get jacked up myself, I'm not doing anybody any good, including myself. So I need to make sure it's safe. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure, well, is the tree stand going to fall down when I bend over to help him and, and knock me out too? Right. So maybe I just take a look up in the tree and if I need to do something and I can do something quickly to get that tree stand down to where it's not going to fall and hurt me, then that's what I need to do or whatever the scenario may be. I just need to make sure it's safe. And then after that, I'm going to approach whoever it is and, and try to talk to them. Hey, man, can you hear me? Uh, do you understand anything that I'm saying and assess their level of consciousness? See if they're awake, see if they're completely out. Um, and after I've assessed that, I'm going to look at all the things. I'm going to run through that algorithm of March, uh, massive hemorrhage, airway, respiration, circulation, and then hypothermia or head injuries. And because the reason for that algorithm in that order is those are typically the things that are going to kill someone the fastest. So what I'll do is I'll start with a blood sweep. And what that means is I'm putting on some, some nitrile gloves. I'm starting at their head and I'm sweeping their entire face and the back of their head without moving them dramatically. Uh, their ears and everything for blood. After I cover the entire face and head, I'm looking at my gloves, looking at front and back to see if I see any blood on my gloves. 
Um, one other quick tip with gloves is a lot of people are quick to want to buy, similar to the tourniquet, they want to buy black, black gloves because they think they look cool. <laughs> guess what doesn't show up very well on black gloves? Blood. So get blue gloves, get some tan. I know uh, North American Rescue sells tan gloves in most of their kits or white gloves. Just get the, the brighter colored gloves so you can see blood on. Um, after that, I'm going to move to the neck, check the back of the neck. And again, I'm not moving their neck and their head around like crazy. I'm just feeling around it and then looking at my hands, see if I see any blood. Uh, check the front, the throat, uh, and then I'll move down the collarbones, down the shoulders, down you know one of the arms, then down the other. Uh, and again, every time I touch a body part, I'm looking at my hands. So I'll check, sweep one arm all the way down to the hands, look at my gloves. I'll go to the other arm, I'll check the other one, look at my gloves. Then I'll go to the armpits, look at my gloves. Then I'll start with the chest, check the whole chest, um, the back as much as I can get to it stomach, the pelvis, uh, again, being very careful with the pelvis, because if there's an injury there, the pelvis can be unstable. Um, if I move it around too much, bone shards that may be inside there could nick the femoral artery and cause internal bleeding. So I want to be careful with the pelvis. Um, and then I'm going to check both legs and the feet to see if I notice any bleeding at all. Um, if there's none noted, if I don't see any major bleeding or anything on my hands, then I'm going to move to the airway. And I'll go up to him and again, I'm trying to see if he's awake, if he's going to talk to me. Maybe he's moaning and, and kind of out of it, you know, seems sleepy almost. Well, I'm just going to look at his airway. And I can do that by just look, listen, and feel. And a lot of people are familiar with that just from CPR, where I, I bend down, I put my ear close to his mouth. I'm looking down his chest and I'm listening to see if I hear any breathing. I'm trying to feel any breath on my face and I'm looking for any rise and fall out of the chest to see if he's breathing. Uh, if he's breathing normally, which is um, anywhere from, you know, about 20 respirations a minute, you know, anywhere plus or minus there, um, which is gonna be on average, uh, then continue on with your assessment. If he's not, or if he's not breathing at all and is completely unconscious, then I'm gonna go ahead and put some type of an airway device in. And that would be the time to make that um, intervention. So I'm gonna put my MPA in, just like we talked about earlier, and put my OPA in. Um, from there, I'm gonna, you know, and that's where I'm assessing the airway and his respirations at the same time. And that's something that I wanna go ahead and take note of if I can. So having a pen and paper or a Sharpie that come, most med kits will come with a little mini Sharpie inside, which is great for writing on the tourniquet. And also you can just take notes on the back of your glove or on the back of your hand or on, on your pants. Uh, one thing I used to do is, rip off a piece of tape and put it on my leg. And I would write down all my patient's um, vitals on that piece of tape. So that way I had it there in reference and so I could get back to my clipboard, write it down on a piece of paper. Well, obviously we're not gonna have a clipboard and a piece of paper in the back country, you know? So just writing it down on my glove, on the back of my hand, on a piece of tape or my pants leg, whatever. Um, and then just take note. And the reason taking note of things like that is so important is so that way when I go back and I reassess later, or maybe the paramedics show up or someone shows up, I can tell them, hey, he was breathing, you know, 15 times per minute, uh, you know, 20 minutes ago. Well, if he's now breathing four times per minute, something has changed in that amount of time and can actually clue in uh, the emergency medical providers or a doctor later on. So taking note of those things is really important. Um, so write that down, you know, if you, if you have that ability or jot it into your phone, most everybody has their phone, can put a note in. Um, from there, I'm assessing his circulation. So I'm just going to check a pulse. You can check a carotid pulse um, right there on the neck. 
Uh, it's kind of a difficult thing for me to explain, but I would venture to say that most people have checked their pulse on their neck, you know, in the carotid artery a time or two. Um, and again, check it, make sure it's there and assess what some details about the pulse. Is it really, really strong? Is it like thudding really hard? Or is it really faint, really difficult to see? Um, because those can cue you in and maybe not even you, but a medical provider later into some things. So take note of not only how many times it's beating per minute, but what does it feel like? Is it a really strong, normal pulse? Is it beating really, really fast? Is it beating really slow? Is it faint? Uh, all those types of things matter. So uh, one thing you can do is just take note for 15 seconds, especially if you notice that there's some serious trauma involved. Take a 15-second pulse or a 30-second pulse, and then for 15 seconds, obviously, multiply it by four. For 30 seconds, multiply it by two, and then you have a solid number for what a BPM would be, beats per minute. So um, from there, I'm going to start treating that person for hypothermia, and I'm going to start looking at head injuries. So what I'm going to do is get out that shock blanket um, or the survival blanket, and I'm going to get that out, and I'm going to lay it over them and start protecting them and keeping their body temperature uh, warm. You want to keep them warm. Um, and that's because any type of shock, whatever it is, that's the best treatment that you can do. If there's no significant trauma to their hips or legs, you can raise their legs and bend their knees, uh, which will help shunt blood back to their trunk or to their heart and, and help treat for shock that way as well. Um, if you have the ability to, and there's not a ton of trauma or anything that would prevent you from moving them, go ahead and get them off the ground as well. Put a sleeping bag under them, um, put a sleeping pad under them, something like that. Getting them off the ground will help a lot as well. And then again, I'm going to start looking for head injuries at that, at the last part of that assessment. And, uh, a few signs for that is looking uh, behind the ears to see if there's any bruising behind the ears, which is called um, battle signs. Uh, you can look under the eyes and you'll see like, we'll call it raccoon eyes where you get bruising right underneath the eye, like the same you would as if you had like a black eye um, or any type of clear fluid coming out of the ears or the nose, uh, which could be spinal fluid. Um, and the bruising under the eyes will key you into some like a significant trauma, the, the bruising behind the ear, same thing. So that'll cue you into some significant head trauma. And obviously there's not a lot we can do about that as a, as a first responder, but it, it's important to take note of, to tell, so that way they can relay that to the doctor so they can start making uh, the interventions that they need to make. So um, following that protocol, looking for those things and making interventions at their appropriate points, uh, that's really important for, for an assessment. Um, if at any point during my blood sweep, I do find blood, maybe I, I find it on the leg, but I don't really see a hole in the clothing or the clothing's not overly ripped or anything crazy. I'm going to find as best I can the source of that bleeding. I'll get my trauma shears out and I'll cut those pants and I'll try to expose that injury and see what it is. So that way I can actually know what's going on and can treat it. Um, a lot of people take, um, you know, they see in a video or they hear through whatever it is, they hear, oh, well, an arterial bleed, you know, that's going to squirt bright red blood. Well, that's true. It will squirt bright red blood. But if we're wearing multiple layers of clothing because we're out hunting, or even a single layer of clothing, it doesn't mean that it's going to be squirting out of that person. You know, um, clothing does a really good job at hiding um, all that bleeding. So we need to make sure we expose the injury so we can actually see and assess the amount of bleeding that may be there. So um, one of the things you mentioned about um, 
putting, you know, keeping, retaining the heat and stuff like that, putting the pad underneath them. Can we kind of go into that a little bit more too, as far as like, sure. I mean, you talk about hypothermia, but like what types of hypothermia are there and how do you lose that body heat? So, um, one of the things that we teach, and I'll, I'll start with it like this. And one of the things we teach in survival, and um, I'm, I'm stealing a, a method that Kevin Estella, that I learned from Kevin Estella, and it's called the IOU method for building a shelter, which is something to sleep inside of, something to sleep on top of, and something to sleep underneath. Um, those are the principles that you should be following for building a shelter, in, an emergency type shelter, or any kind of shelter really in the backcountry that I plan to survive out of, even if it's for one night or for a long period of time. Um, if you can make something very similar to that for a victim uh, in the backcountry to treat for shock, it's a huge thing. Get them on top of something, get them off of a cold ground, um, putting it inside of something, if you have a sleeping bag or you can cover them. Um, I wouldn't suggest necessarily putting them inside the sleeping bag or maybe just drape the sleeping bag over them. So that way I can always go back and look at any interventions I made. When I say interventions, that means applying a bandage, applying a tourniquet, uh, putting in an, in an airway of some kind, any type of thing that I did to that person, I consider that an intervention that I've made. So uh, I need to be able to expose those interventions and the things that I've done so I can assess them, you know, in five minute or 10 minute increments so I can see if things are getting, if it's doing its intended purpose, if it's stopping the bleeding or if it's continuing to bleed and getting worse. So don't necessarily make it difficult to get back to those interventions, but drape something over them and keep them warm. Um, there's several different types of shock and hypothermia um, is essentially just hypo meaning low and then thermia is just, you know, your temperature. So that's any time that the body is really dropping below about 95 degrees, um, the core body temperature. Uh, when you're cold, um, probably at the coldest you've ever been in your life, where you're shivering and you're like, oh my God, I got to get inside. You know, your body temperature sits at 98.6. You're probably at like 98.1, you know, and that's at the coldest that you're ever getting. So maybe, you know, you're getting down at a 97.9 or something like that, but you're not having like an, an entire degree difference change when you're just cold. So your core temperature has to really drop for your body to, to be in what's truly hypothermia. Um, typically, it'll, it's something that takes a long amount of time to happen from an external factor. Um, it doesn't just happen immediately, depending on the external conditions, right? Um, but when we're talking about blood loss, you can lose a significant amount of blood very quickly through an arterial bleed. Um, if you're able to, uh, to identify and stop an arterial bleed, we don't have means as just first responders and, and, and civilians to put blood or any type of fluid back in the body. So the only thing that we can really do to promote that and uh, help our victim out is to keep them warm and try to keep their body temperature high. Um, and, and I can give you a little bit into the weeds on why that's so important. And it's, it's something that we're battling and it's called, um, oh man, it just escaped me, I was about to tell you. Um, well, the, um, oh my gosh. So the hype, the, the keep them on the, on the mats, uh, you're, you're preventing conduction, right? You're, you're yes. keeping the cold ground or something from sucking the heat out of their body, yeah. especially when they've already had a blood loss. 
So Absolutely. that way you're keeping their core warmer if it's already starting to drop because of the blood loss. Now you're preventing that that conduction, sucking the heat out. Mm-hmm. And then there's some other means that um, also, you know, heat loss through, uh, you know, perspiration or moisture evaporation, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're trying to prevent that by covering them up. So that way they're not either losing that heat through evaporation or if their skin was a little wet or something like that, you want to, you want to trap that heat. Um, and then what would the, the other one be as well? I mean, there's a few different types of, of heat loss, um, evaporation, um, which is the one we all know you sweat and it begins to evaporate up off of you, uh, convection, uh, which is just air moving across the skin, you know, and, um, can be lost just through your, uh, you know, the ambient air and being a, an environment that's cold, which is why you want to put them inside of something. And if that just means pulling them out of the environment as best you can, putting them inside the tent, something like that. Um, there's conduction, which you, you touched on, which is just laying against an object. Um, the colder object will always cool you down. You're never going to just heat up whatever you're laying on. Uh, there's radiation, which is just your body radiating that temperature. Um, even if that's just, if you have a block of ice next to you, right, that's colder than what you are. Um, so you, you notice that, right? Well, our bodies work that same way and we radiate heat and can lose heat through that. And then respiration just through our breath. Um, as we breathe, we release moisture and all the oxygen and, and it can cool us off. So putting them in a warmer environment where they're not inhaling a bunch of cold air um, is another great reason just to put them inside of something uh, to help keep them warm. Um, that uh, the term I was looking for a second ago is uh, the lethal triad. There it is. Good grief. Um, and, and what that is, is um, so hypothermia is, is one of those pillars of, the, of those three pillars. So as you become hypothermic, um, it affects your body's ability to coagulate blood, which I mentioned er- earlier. Coagulation is just uh, your body's ability to clot. So as you lose the ability to coagulate blood and you lose more blood, it affects your body's pH balance. Um, Being more acidic or alkaline affects the way your body performs in a lot of different ways. Um, You you notice after you work out, uh, you're sore the next day. That's because you built up lactic acid and that acidity can affect you in negative ways if it's not dealt with by stretching. It can make recovery much more difficult for your muscles, right? Well, you can imagine how... uh, being overly acidic or um, overly alkaline, which is less acidic, can affect your body in other ways internally, right? Well, as your body loses uh, its ability to balance its pH through blood loss, well, you're, you're not able to clot that blood, right? So then if you can't clot blood, you lose more blood, so you continue to get colder. As you get colder, your pH balance continues to get off, and then you, you know, fall into not being able to coagulate even more, and so now you're losing more blood, and you can see that that's kind of a perpetuating cycle and it, one affects the other. So you have to stop one corner of those pillars to be able to, to stop that lethal triad. So the one that we can really affect change on is I can't affect your body's coagulation, your ability to clot. I can't affect your body's pH balance in a short amount of time as a first responder, but I can potentially stop all that bleeding and allow your body and promote staying warm by putting you uh, inside of, on top of, and underneath something. So with that being said, good reason to carry one, some type of clotting device of, you know, your gauze or whatever, yeah. circling back to what we talked about earlier, 
and a tourniquet and also your mylar blanket or space blanket or whatever you want to call it as well. Yep. And then a sleeping pad works great. Um, any kind of a tent or uh, one of the big ones that I always carry is I carry like an old school poncho. I have an old um, BDU poncho um, and I was issued it uh, when I was at the survival school for the Air Force. I was issued like 10 of those things. And I still have them all. And at, <laughs> when I got issued them, I was like, oh my gosh, like, this is like some Vietnam era stuff. Like, what are they giving us this stuff for? But dude, those things are awesome. I carry at least two with me almost all the time because again, two is one, one is none. And uh, I like to, I just like them, man. Like one, they work as a great poncho, but I build every shelter I've ever stayed in, in the backcountry <laughs> has been one of those ponchos. Rather I, carry, the- I carry one in my trunk of my car and mostly use it as actual rain gear, but I know there's other uses for it, you know, in, in yeah. some type of survival scenario or whatever, mm-hmm. but there's no way in heck I'm going to carry one of them in the back country in my pack. <laughs> Not when you can carry two or even three or four, or probably 10 mylar blankets realistically oh, yeah. before oh. you even get to like a quarter of the weight of that thing. Absolutely. And I think I carry them for nostalgia purposes. Yeah. And it's like a sense of pride to me to still make a, a shelter out of them and, and do my thing with them. But, um, dude, something even like that or a tarp or, you know, like you said, the space blankets, there's a million options out there and way better options. I mean, you can carry a tent that weighs ounces now, you know what yeah. I mean? And something as simple as a few ounces of a tent can make a huge difference in, in treating for shock of whatever coming. So is there uh, anything else as far as like uh, identifying or anything? I mean, we kind of covered it mostly, but. Um... So the other thing I would do is, is after I've, done a blood sweep um, and, and check to see if there's any bleeding from any part of the body um, is you can go back and, and actually do like a secondary assessment on, on your patient. And, and this is a little bit into the weeds, um, but I'll, I'll give you guys an acronym of the things that you can look for. And what it is, is it's called DCAP BTLS. And uh, I just memorized that. Uh, I was taught that in the EMT course. And then I just remembered what it um, what it stands for. And it stands for uh, deformities or discoloration, contusions, abrasions, punctures or penetrations, burns, tenderness, lacerations, and swelling. So those are all the things. And that's, I mean, obviously that's a lot of things to look for, right? Especially in one suite, especially as someone that's not necessarily doesn't hold a credential of um, actually helping someone, right? To be an EMT or a first responder or a paramedic or anything like that. But if you can memorize that and at least remember some of those, you know what you're looking for. So then again, I'm just gonna start over at the head and then I'm gonna get really hands-on. So I'm gonna be feeling around, um, you know, my, my patient's forehead and uh, on his skull all the way around the back and um, feeling, uh, you know, the orbital bones around the eyes and feeling the nose to see if the cartilage is all intact. And, around the mouth and opening the mouth and looking to see if there's any teeth missing or anything crazy that could obstruct their airway. I'm gonna feel down their jaw and then move to their neck. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm gonna feel on their throat and their Adam's apple, make sure everything feels somewhat normal. And, uh, you know, feel their collarbones, make sure there's no, nothing there that sticks out to me as any of those DCAP BTLS type things. And then I'm just gonna do that and follow the same pattern that I did for the blood sweep. I'm going to go down one arm, but I'm just being a lot more hands-on where I'm actually gripping 
uh, and feeling those bones and the muscles and, and squeezing and pulling and moving. And I'm not going to be overtly aggressive or anything, you know, but what I'm doing is I'm just trying to see if there's any kind of reaction out of my patient. And even an unconscious patient will react. Um, even someone that's completely out cold, if you grab a hold of their arm and it's injured uh, pretty badly, their body will tense up and they'll wince. So uh, obviously I don't want to do it aggressively enough to create more and cause more damage, you know, but I'm just trying to get a reaction, right. To see if there's anything there. And even as a conscious person, if you've just been through some type of traumatic event, like a fall or a, um, or a car accident or something like that, you may be shook up and not even notice uh, an injury that's happened, you know, or, or you may not notice another injury. Like I said, if you have one of those big distracting injuries, like a really badly broken arm or something like that, you might not notice that your foot's broken too, but it's important to take note of. So that way it still gets taken care of. No, it's funny you say that because I actually kind of run through the gamut of that acronym about <laughs> once a week with my son. He's, uh, <laughs> he's not quite two yet, but he likes to climb a lot and you can't yeah. even, you literally turn around and he falls off of something or whatever. <laughs> Most of the time he's okay, but you start to notice like every once in a while a wince or do something. And that's when I run through the full assessment and you start yeah. squeezing the appendages and looking yeah. bruising. And, and that's the thing. Is a lot of parents are masters at this and they don't <laughs> because you're just trying to figure out, well, what the heck did you do this time? You know? Yeah. So <laughs> I've got a little bit of experience in that, but um, <laughs> what, one of the other things I think, I think is huge is um, backcountry communication. And I know, a lot of people don't think about that or they use their cell phone, but most of the time, let's be realistic. We're going to places to get away from, you know, mm -hmm. society. Right. And, and a lot of times you don't have cell service. And the one thing that I throw in my pack, super simple. You just, I mean, you keep it in your truck, you keep it charged. I keep it in my truck pretty much all the time is like some type of satellite communication, mm -hmm. whether it be an in reach or whatever. And I mean, you can do all kinds of subscriptions to where it could literally be, I think like $5 a month. Right. And you think about it and you're like, oh man, $5 a month or even $10 a month. You're like, oh, I don't want to do that. Right. But you'll go to Starbucks and go through a drive-through and buy, you know, two cups of coffee a week or whatever. That just paid your subscription mm -hmm. for that device that could potentially save your life one of these days. And I've never had to use it, but I will say the other thing I think super cool about them is when I send, like, I could just send a message to my wife, like, Hey, I'm out, I'm out in the field, whatever, or, you know, just got to the stand. Yeah. I'm going to do that. Night, or I'm going to be doing whatever, you know, but the cool part is, is when I do that, it actually pulls up a map to where she can click on her phone. And that's mm -hmm. my last known location as well. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's huge, you know, and, and having some type of a, even if you don't have a Garmin in reach or a, a spot, I carry a Garmin spot with me and I have an in reach um, that was issued to me through search and rescue that I carry. And uh, it's a great device. You know, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I would encourage anyone that spends any amount of time in the back country, um, even if it's just for a day hike uh, to carry something like that. And yeah, sure. It is a little bit of money. Sure. It is uh, commitment, but I mean, the, the security that it gives you is, insane you know and, and and it's actually we deal with this a lot in search and rescue where um the guy will you know whoever's out there will call 911 or and we'll get some type of a triangulated position on kind of about where they're at but it's accurate to a really a couple hundred meters and so we get we're getting out way somewhere out in the back country where and here in utah we see a lot of people that at this time of year are doing uh you know on snow machines and they're out 
you know, eight, 10 miles into the backcountry on a snow machine and it breaks down and the sun starts going down and they're exhausted because they've been working on their snow machine or uh, they're stuck and they've been working for an hour to get unstuck and they just can't do it. And they're starting to get cold and they're sweaty. And they call 911 and they're like, hey, I need help. So, you know, we'll take off out there, but, it, but then it's a search, right? But every time we've gotten a call out where we've gotten an in-reach uh, signal, it takes us within five meters of that person's position. A lot of times it's down to like three meters. So it's very accurate. Uh, and it's just so much easier to work with. And whenever the 911 service locally gets that, I mean, it's almost always an exact location of where that person is versus trying to triangulate somebody's cell phone off of a few cell phone towers that might be miles and miles away. So uh, it's just a much more accurate, a much more um, urgent way of getting your exact position. And so I, I can tell you firsthand that something like that is way helpful, even for the parties coming to get you. And that's uh, even uh, for low. I know a lot of other clothing companies have done it as far as like at BCA and some other people, they put the, like the Rico technology mm. in, in their, in their clothing. And actually I was, I talked to Andy, you know, quite a few episodes ago, but the owner of Forlo and they decided to put in the hood of their jackets, the Rico technology. That's so awesome. it's got the repeater repeats that signal back to them. So, I mean, that's a huge help too. That is, man. And I, I and, you know, and I think that's super smart, especially in avalanche country, right, where you need someone that is going to have a probe um, so that way they can be found much faster. And I would encourage everybody. And I, I just did a video, uh, like a 20 minute video on my Instagram on things to carry for if you're going to be spending time in avalanche country. But um, I would encourage everyone to get not just a probe, but um, not just a receiver, but a transceiver, something that can send and receive uh, a signal because you know, it might not just be you. If you're out there, usually people take, you know, one or two or three or a handful of friends with them on snow machines or out into the backcountry skiing or whatever. And should you find yourself in that worst case scenario of being caught up in an avalanche that you can't avoid, you know, you're going to want to be able to, to send out a signal to find your friends and start working on getting them out. Because I can tell you that a lot of times in a lot of places in this country, you know, help is very often half hour to an hour and sometimes even longer away if that and that's if they're fast uh, i would i'll say here in utah uh, i'm not far from park city and that's one of the biggest skiing areas in the country and we're very fortunate to have um, to be funded well and have some really good guys that are really experienced on our teams and we're really good and we have really fast response times but i know in areas in washington and idaho and things like that you know, their, their, their search and rescue times are much slower because it's a volunteer service. It's, um, you know, it's maybe a step above the Jeep posse and that's just all that they have in that area. And, um, that's no fault of their own. And I don't mean to say anything negative towards that at all, even a little bit, but it's just the reality of the situation. So uh, a lot of times help, um, is, is several minutes to hours away. So having that technology and clothing and carrying it on your person, uh, I mean, it's massive, massively helpful. Absolutely. Man, I appreciate you coming on and uh, talking to everybody about all this stuff. I think it's super important and I'm glad we got to sit down and uh, definitely talk about it. So yeah, once I again, it. dude, yeah, before we go, man, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find, you know, 
sources maybe that you reference on top of, you know, the company you work for, man? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I appreciate letting me come on. Hopefully I didn't bore everybody to death with, with all this. It's not, it's not the most fun and sexy of information, but it's life-saving. So um, I appreciate you having me on again and would love to come back, but you can find me on Instagram at, at Savage Luster. Um, and then I work for Fieldcraft Survival. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Fieldcraft Survival. You can check out our website. Um, check us out on YouTube. Uh, we do tons of free content on YouTube. I mean, we're putting out two videos a week on YouTube right now and uh, sometimes even more. And then you can find us on a, a platform called Locals as well. It's a paywall, $10 paywall. But we're putting several, several videos a week um, of very organized content on that platform. And uh, everything from tactical training to survival training and a lot of what we talked about tonight and med training. And, um, I, and it's not just for me. We have uh, another guy in house whose name is Doc Pete. Um, he's a Green Beret. Yeah, he's a doctor. Uh, and I mean, he's the real deal. You know what I mean? So uh, we have him on there giving out um, tons of free content as well on all the stuff that we talked about. So uh, there's tons of other great resources out there. North American Rescue. Follow them on Instagram. Um, they have tons of great videos, um, dark angel med. I, I mean, the list goes on. You can get on YouTube and Google any of the things I talked about and find some source of information. Um, but I would absolutely encourage you guys to get out there and research these topics, um, and learn about them and check us out. Like I said, at Fieldcraft, man, we, we do courses all over the country on this stuff. Um, I'm teaching one in two weeks. I'll be out in, um, Connecticut teaching. I'll be down in South Carolina teaching this stuff. So, uh, we're all over doing this. So I definitely encourage people to get out and do it. On top of that, you can go to Fieldcraft Survival and jump on their store and probably purchase pretty much anything that we've talked about as far as, um, as, as gear. We so, have, we have all those kits. We have big kits online. We even have one, the, the Hunter kit that's designed to be lightweight. It carries all the things that I mentioned. Uh, it weighs no more than a few ounces uh, and it's camouflage on the outside, just so it's <laughs> outside of your pack, you know, so we really thought it through and, and, and are trying to put out the best products that we can for you guys. All right, man. Austin, I appreciate it. Like I said earlier, man, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.